0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Dara here. I am broadcasting live from the Back to the 50s car show, the Minnesota Street Rod Association. How... Beautiful It is today here out at the fairgrounds. It's sunny and beautiful. People were all saying, it's gonna rain. Well, it didn't rain. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely perfect. It's day two. I don't know anything about cars, and that's why it's so fun for me to come here and I walk around. I'm like, that's a real Studebaker. I was looking at something this morning, and I was like, what car could that possibly be? It's Art Deco. It's just absolutely astonishing. And then it took me a while, but then I realized that's a made-up car that somebody did all themselves from scratch, and it was awesome. And so it's a big open-air museum of super cool cars here today. Here's what I want from you. Let's talk about foods of the 50s what are the foods of the 50s what are the good ones that like keep going I'm going to start you off steak Diane that was a classic country club uh, supper club food of the 1950s it was basically uh, sliced steak with a mushroom wine sauce but what are your what are your favorite foods of the 1950s ones you still make but like definitely were rooted in that time I don't know if we can say hamburgers. All right, so text me. 651-989-9226. 651-989-9226. Foods of the 50s. All right, here's why I'm disqualifying hamburgers. Because hamburgers were super big in the 1930s and 20s. Basically, every time after... You know, from the Depression onward, hamburgers were big. Remember Wimpy from the Popeye cartoons? He wanted a hamburger. Well, he's not in the 50s. He's way before then. uh, So I'm disqualifying hamburgers for a 1950s food. So text me, 651-989-9226. Here's what else we have coming up. Jack Rebel, the chef from the Lexington, St. Paul's most vaunted and storied uh, supper club he is going to come in and we're going to talk about classic foods kind of what he has learned cooking the classics how they need to be updated how they need to be rooted in the past i'm pretty interested in all of this all right i got a text donuts i don't know that's another one that's a that's a don you know uh Old New York, they were frying dough in, like, New Amsterdam, and it, they, and that was a part of life. So donuts, I'm not going to allow that for a 1950s food. So what are, what are the 1950s foods? We know that Coca-Cola started as a patent medicine, so that doesn't count. Remember, it had cocaine in it, and it was going to give you pep. That was a, a time of snake oil. So that doesn't count for a 1950s food. Um, I have, uh, yeah, pork chops and applesauce. That's kind of a classic, and I love Lucy. All right, I will, I will allow that because the something that happened. We don't think about it too much anymore, but like kitchen technology was really, really changed after World War II. We got um, stoves that didn't need firewood or didn't need coal. Uh, a much cleaner situation. So a lot of cooking did change in the 1950s i was actually talking to a chef um who runs harry sings it's a caribbean place on nicola and 27th street and he was telling me that he grew up he full-on had a a coal fire outside and so he was born in 1945 and obviously trinidad is not you know mainland united states but you know that think about how much work that took like he had to f- learn how to cook by using firewood and kind of ma- manipulating that around um, and so then you know we, things i ta- i have taken stoves indoor stoves for granted my whole life if you think about what a revolution that would have been all right i got a i got a text chipped beef on toast yeah that is a good 50 ding 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 i am showering you with Stars and hearts from here on the broadcast booth. Uh, that is classic because it kind of came out of World War II, I believe. Chip beef was initially dehydrated beef. And you got, and then, you know, Cookie, your camp cook, would rehydrate it on the front lines. And then uh, people kind of got a fondness for it. So, yes, you win the first prize of today's Foods of the 50s as we broadcast from the back to the 50s. Uh, weekend at the MSRA car show. There were planes flying overhead a minute ago. So that's another cool reason to come out here. All right. I've got a text. Went to Mexico as a teenager in the fifties, had a taco, came home and made them for my friends who had never had them before either. Yummy. Oh yeah. Let's think about that. That was definitely a thing that was going on in the forties and fifties. People Coming home from uh, faraway travel, whether they have been traveling to Europe as part of the war or you know the Marshall Plan, uh, that that was definitely happening in the fifties. We don't think about that that much, but the fifties kind of uh, you know Julia Child uh, reorganization of uh, American cooking, and then also pizza. Pizza really came came on the scene. After, I don't want to say like after the 30s and stuff. Oh, we got a tuna noodle casserole. Absolutely. That is a perfect ding, ding, ding. I'm sending you hearts and flowers and stars here from the broadcast booth. Tuna noodle casserole is just the... Oh, it's so good because it was kind of classy because it was a casserole. It came out of things that were made with cans. So that had a very like... Fifties moment of make a perfect homemaking, but not too much, um, not too fussy. Yeah, that was a good one. Oh, we got a fondue text, fondue from the fifties, and look who's here—it's Mr. Jack Rebel. Jack Chef of the Lexington. Welcome.
2: Yeah, good to be here.
1: All right, I got a we're. Uh, I'm We're talking so casserole. You, know, huh? you, walk, you walk past all the cars. Aren't they amazing?
2: I'm blinded by all the chrome. It's amazing.
1: They had so much metal. Like, I was looking at them, it's like in the past we had access to iron, steel, and everything. And today it's like well, we could put some metal in it, but mostly we got plastic. That's all that's left.
2: It's truly remarkable.
1: I mean, these, some of these cars. I bet you could make a whole airplane out of a couple of these cars. They are they have they have so many resources within them, and then the the engines are so pretty.
2: Yeah, really. I you know I have never been out here for this. So I was really spectacular to walk over and see all these cars.
1: Yeah, we both kind of walked over because the traffic is unbelievable right now. Because it's a beautiful day. It was supposed to be terrible, and this is. Dan Cook, this is like one of the biggest car shows in the country, right?
0: It is. It's one of the most popular ones for sure, which is why they have to hold it out here on the state fairgrounds. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's just people all over the place. Like you said, it's just a gorgeous day out here. Um, and, and yeah, it, you know, even if you're not a car person, like, which I'm totally not, you can appreciate them as works of art just walking by and looking at them I don't know I couldn't tell you what any of them are but they're beautiful
1: yeah as a I'm a pop culture person as you know and I was looking at the Studebaker before which is like that's that's a thin man car I recognize that that's a, from the movies that's where that's where William Powell uh,
2: the <laughs> family wheels went. of the 1940s and 50s yeah.
1: alright let's take a little break we'll come back and we'll do a full on talk with Jack Riebel about you know how to do things from the past in a modern way what's important from the past what you can chuck what you have to preserve I'm very interested and all that. He's been thinking about foods of the past in the two and a half years since Lexington, this signature restaurant in St. Paul, reopened. Take a little break here. We'll come back and have a meaty, meaty talk with Jack Riebel from the Lex. (laughs) Yeah, we are in the middle, the heart of the car show, the back to the 50s car show. Uh, And I've been asking y'all about foods of the past. I got a great text, tomato soup with green olives over saltine crackers. Yeah, those convenience foods, they made a massive, massive break into the mainstream in the in the forties and fifties. All right. Now this is exciting. Jack Reebel is here. Jack has been a chef in the Twin Cities. Some, I was just talking to somebody the other day, and they're like, "They're like, who's coming to the show?" I was like, "Oh, Jack." And they're like, "Who? Who's that?" And I was like, "Oh, he's from the Dakota." And I was like, "What just happened in my brain? <laughs> it was at the Dakota fifteen years ago." God, that he, long ago is, uh, so. He's you were at Goodfellas, uh, the Dakota, many places, and then La you La Bellevue. That's right. You uh, just this fine dining uh, chain of amazing resume and uh, amazing chef. And then took over the Lexington, and then they had the longest renovation, and the whole Twin Cities was like, will they open? Is everything over? <laughs> uh, we're on the, I don't know if we can handle it. Do we have to have a grief group? Like, how is it going to work? And then you reopened, and it's just been beautiful. And you've got two and a half years now.
2: Yeah, yeah. We opened in February of 2017 after two and a half years of arduous renovation.
1: All right, so nobody knows about grappling with... Legacy foods, history, American classics, like you do, right? So you had to kind of go piece by piece and think about these. So let's talk about let's talk about supper club. Talk about a couple of menu ideas and talk about how you what's relevant. Like what do you have to do to make them modern, and what do you have to keep from the past? So let me just start. So when you went into the all the way in the wayback machine, when you started thinking about what had to be on the Lexington menu, what, how, what did you go through? What was your kind of thinking on that? You know,
2: one of the resources we had there when we took over was that there were a lot of menus from the past. So it was really fun to go back and look at. And whoever had archived these had, you know, penciled the date of each menu. So I have some dating back to the 40s, you know, all the way up to 96, I think, was, you know, the last kind of iteration of the old. Um, And it was fun to see that food because, quite frankly, when, you know, when I went to culinary program in the mid 80s at St. Paul College, a lot of what? lived on those menus was kind of the food that was being cooked in that period you know oh so you learned how to you know uh, make beef wellington yeah you did beef wellington you did you know scampi which of course just means shrimp but butter and garlic um a lot of the uh you know a lot of things the classics like liver and onions which everybody loved uh broiled fish i don't know how maybe broils anything anymore. Um, Those things became, you know, they were really relevant in that time and they became part of the repertoire that I was trained in classically. And I was kind of fortunate, I think, in a lot of respects to see the transition of the last, you know, three decades, particularly I think the last more than anything on how modernized food has become.
1: Yeah, I was I was cleaning off photos of my phone before, and just old food photos. I, I keep all the kid photos, and eventually I delete the food photos. They're not relevant anymore. And I was looking at this one plating, and it was such a cliche. It was like this sploosh of orange on the plate, and then a bunch of cubes of something. I was like, I don't even, I don't, couldn't tell you what this was in any possible. Uh, you know, I couldn't tell you if there was a protein on the plate. I couldn't tell you what restaurant it was from. It was such a cliche, and I was like. Mm. That's how we'll look back at the, you know, eight, 17, 18 or whatever as those things. But, but what did you – what do you feel like is the core of the Supper Club menu that you have to have? Obviously, steaks and chops. Yeah, and-
2: I think – yeah, you know, you think steaks, chops. I mean, ribs, I think, were something that were really popular. Inexpensive, slow cooking. Uh, you know, I think you see a lot of that in those old menus. Braised lamb shanks. Uh, the one thing that I, you know, I haven't brought back yet, but I'd like to, there was a lot of scallopini. There was actually a lot of veal. And I think another part of it that really fascinated me that we've explored more into as we have changed the programming over the last you know, year and a half and we're changing it more, um, a huge Italian influence. And, you know, and in the history of the supper club, it was really kind of Midwestern food that found its way to the coast. I mean, the first kind of identified supper clubs, in my mind at least, in research, More like the Palm in in California and these places that open. And these were Wisconsinites, a lot of them immigrants. Right, uh, Irish and Italian, going out there and cooking this Midwestern food. You know, baked potatoes and meat and
1: so that. So potatoes, like that's a core, right? You yeah, have I mean, to have think, the different. I think
2: in Minnesota, you gotta have a
1: potato. I
2: love a potato.
1: <laughs> like that's that that's kind of my desert island food. Goes down. I mean, the I thought I thought they were, were gonna salami. burn me down
2: in St. Paul when I opened without a baked potato on the menu, but I hadn't baked a potato in 20 years. You know, I mean, and uh,
1: do you have it now?
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: So it's a, there's like a secret. <laughs> Any to it, way right? you
2: want, you know, sour cream on the side, butter on top, fully loaded. I, you know, I don't. Whatever they want is what I do.
1: Um, all right, so potato potatoes are core, and then you have to update them in some ways, and then kind of keep the classicness Correct. of them. So, what do you give me? An oh, well, example. here's the
2: thing: is I think you really touched on something. Um, When I arrived, you were talking about the food of the fifties and kind of how we industrialized food, right? Things became almost scratch or more convenient, and I think that that found its way into mainstream America. And I think for me, bringing it back, you know, we're talking about the Italian influence. I make all my own pasta now from scratch. I do these things, so not only in some respects refining it um, it, from what it was, so that's still recognizable, but really just I think modernizing the cooking, right And, and making the things that you do more contemporary from the perspective of the quality of ingredients and and technique as much as anything.
1: Yeah. I just did this big story on hot beef commercial sandwiches. Which I
2: loved by the way. Oh,
1: thank you. Thanks. That was a fun piece. And there's, you know, it's a, a magazine story. You could always put, I could have turned that into a book and there was so much that I left out. And one of the things I left out was like a lot of people no longer know what homemade gravy is. They just don't know. You know, you talk to them. We're like, we, we make our gravy from scratch every day. And then you kind of dig into the process. And what they mean is they open a can of or a, or a more expensive plastic jar of jus and then they modify it. And that is their idea of what they're making, making gravy. And they just as far like they don't know that there is another way to arrive at gravy.
2: Yeah, and so there's an example of what I'm talking about. I mean, I grew up, and, and bless my mom, she's wonderful, uh, maybe not the best cook. She made, like, five things really well, but we had cornstarch gravy, you know, which is fine, to your point. It's the drippings, but they're thickened with cornstarch. You know, when I go to culinary school, you do the long braise. You learn how to how to cook the fawn, save the drippings, you know, and actually make, like you said, real gravy, brown the roux. Uh, and those are the kind of things I think when you're classically trained, you can, you know, modernize some things that I think – it's interesting. He says it's not that the food was bad; it was just dated, right? Does that make sense? Well, I don't know.
1: I mean, I mean, a commercial still is relevant, people right? People don't You're like to people don't like value judgments, but I am a critic. And I am gonna say, like, <laughs> you know, powder gravy is not good. Like, it's
2: not as good as homemade gravy. Like, it's I, I'm here to judge it. Not as good. That's fine. And I think, you know, if, if you don't have an opinion, you really, I don't know what kind of value there is. But <laughs> it, it one of the things that's always bugged me, probably since I learned to cook, is those giant dry that you find on oh, generic I salad. I mean, I don't even understand it. I
1: know? had those at a, I went to this, uh, yeah, fairly. I don't know. I'll just say who it was. It was Bread and Pickle, which is a you know kind of well-known farm-to-table Kim Bartlett establishment, and just these terrible, you know, out-of-the-box elderly croutons. Like, really? Or worse, made
2: from scratch but left out for a week and
1: stale. I don't know. I think I. I, I don't know. I, but
2: you know, to the example, what I've done in a more modern context, everybody, I think texture is really relevant in the modern era for. For whatever reason, that's another topic. But, like, instead of doing croutons, now I do breadcrumbs, you know, and I do that in my chopped Caesar salad. And it adds an element of texture and flavor and crouton-esque, but not.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying is that you have to kind of think through each of the elements as you go through the, you know, if you're going to bring something like a Caesar salad into the contemporary time, you have to actually think it through and not just.
2: Yeah, and the, and the irony is mine was inspired. Let's go back to the 50s again. You were talking briefly about Julia Chow. One of our uh, holiday traditions now, um, grandparents passed, my nephew makes a tableside Caesar, which my brother used to make, and it literally is out of the joy of cooking 1950s. I and love that was that. the inspiration for the Caesar salad at the Lexington.
1: The classic way of doing a Caesar where you have to have a wooden bowl and then you have to rub a cut garlic clove on the inside
2: of the bowl. And then you mash the anchovies and the salt and the lemon juice. And and so, you know, I get some pushback because people say, oh, it's, it's really strong on garlic and anchovy. And I'm like, but that's a Caesar salad, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it became mayonnaise probably somewhere in the 70s or 80s. I don't know. But, you know, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to bring back something that's more classic in a contemporary fashion.
1: So what do you do when you... That's a, that's a, such an interesting question. Okay, so a Caesar salad starts in kind of the southwest, right? It was in Mexico. Mexico, yeah. yeah. So it starts in Mexico. It's kind of part of uh, casino culture, right? It's like yeah. high rolling. You're going out. You're in your ball gown. you got a fancy table side situation. Then... It gets you know messed up and diluted, and then people are making it with mayonnaise. and You get a squirt packet, like all this stuff, and then you, in the year twenty, you know eighteen, nineteen, want to go back to those roots, and then you've got a generation that just thinks that of it as like a mayonnaise vehicle.
2: Correct. So what? when they get to see this, out they're shocked that it's not dressed with a mayonnaise-based dressing, right? So
1: then you're in such a weird place because uh, you're. Yeah, that's hard. I didn't think about that because you've got probably a lot of people that are going to be angry at you for changing a thing. They feel like you've changed it when you, in fact, just bring it back to the roots. And then there's going to be a bunch of, like, snooty people that would never order it because they're just going to think, like, oh, God, mayonnaise.
2: Yeah, if the regular Caesar salad. It's funny that you say that. You know, that's that juxtaposition. So you're in the same, I think, realm as, as a critic, as a chef, as how do we educate people to what it was? Because the many people who don't recognize that— is not because um, it's not what it is. It's just they don't know, right? It's the ignorance of of not knowing what came before it. Um, the baked Alaska is a good example. There's a couple of chefs in town I know that are bringing it back. It's fantastic. I mean, this is a dessert that you know harkens back to Steward's Folly and the sale of Alaska in the 1860s. And so this was a uh, you know this was very very uh, fascinating time because I think in in retrospect in doing the Lexington you know, two and a half years ago and thinking about the concept, um, I, you know, I embrace Americana and these old things, the casserole, I call it a casserole, even though Midwesterners call it a hot dish. Um, I've seen it happen now everywhere. You look at places like young Joni in bloom, other places, even nationally, we're getting back to like, we're cooking with fire now. And we've got these things. It's it's almost this antithesis of what we saw through the early decade of the two thousands where everything became very scientific and data based and the cooking got really purifications
1: and, and yeah. oils and airs and gels and all that. And of a this lot kind of good
2: of... came out of that, but I think now you're seeing people you know, want just
1: fire and meat well, or yeah, fire and bread. Well, well, I, think,
2: I think meat's back and I imagine where we are now when we were so gluten intolerant even five years ago. And pasta to me seems to be you know, the hottest food in the planet. Again, now we're going back 2,000 years for noodles. Oh, and,
1: and are people ordering a lot of pasta at the oh, Lex? Oh, yeah.
2: Well, I just are feel you like,
1: kidding me? No, and I feel
2: like pasta everywhere. Every every kind of industry magazine I read, I look at the restaurants that are happening, trendy around the country, um, even here, and in and, and the amount of time and effort people are putting into really artisan pasta making. For me, it's spectacular, but I just think it's ironic when we came out of this time where we didn't want, you know, mass-produced wheat and flour, and, and we didn't want mass-produced breads, and now, you know, you're seeing a renaissance, I think, in artisan bread pastas these things that maybe weren't on trend 10 years ago you know
1: yeah the artist artisanal flour milling and people growing you know it grains and being really careful with them and then bakers paying top dollar for wheat you know yeah. that's a that's that's the trend of the moment and it's uh,
2: and i think it's the exact opposite of what we're talking about when we talk about going back to the 50s right Yet here we look at these amazing cars and you realize these are a product of the time and, and the craftsmanship and what it was and, and i don 't think that this industrialized food was bad it was just an intended result of you know post war america
1: yeah it's interesting when I was you look at the engines in the cars and the amount of kind of design you sense, you know, just pure artistic design. You know, these circles will be concentric, and you know, ever increasing in size or ever de- decreasing in size. And and you just kind of look at it, and you're like, oh, that's a classical education that included, you know, the Plato and the spheres or something. <laughs> it's like this was a like there was a lot of of work poured into the people that did the designing of these things.
2: Yeah, and when you get back to that, I think you touched on something to me that's really important. As we come full on, these still function today the same way that the modern and the modern engine functions today the same way that these did. It's like classic cooking. You know, once you understand the technique and the method and how we arrived at where we are, I think we can all have a better understanding of you know what food is today as opposed to not knowing what the Caesar salad of the past really was. Um, and I think if, if if you have if you have that as a context. It, uh, it really helps you to understand how we've arrived to the place that we have today with food
1: interesting all right we're gonna take a little break here when we come back we're gonna do a little more with jack Reebel from the lexington i am very i'm just very interested in how you take the foods of the past what about them is relevant i know when i see something that i haven't seen in a long time done w- contemporarily like a, well I see a gratten potatoes made from complete scratch i just love it it's the best but you don't see it that much. No. So we'll talk about all these things when we take a little break and we come back on Off the Menu. Dara here. We are at the Back to the 50s Car Show, the 46th annual. It is a beautiful day. I think this is the best weather I've ever had for this gorgeous out here. Uh, This program tells me that there are 11,707 registered vehicles. And then all this other cute stuff. We just saw this baby buggy go by that looked like a 57 Cadillac. I don't understand what that was. I think it was historically relevant. And then, like, tiny children in poodle skirts, which is so funny because it's like they were born probably in, you know, 2010, and they're wearing (laughs) outfits from 60 years ago or what we – anyway. So uh, before we – go we have a short show today because a wonderful twins game coming up but uh jack you're doing a another back to the way back machine thing on the roof at the lexington yeah so we
2: open the rooftop at the lexington probably first week of june you know weather hasn't been wonderful uh but yeah we do a whole retro kind of you know back to the 50s no pun intended visit on the don the beachcomber kind of polynesian theme for those who know me um, i'm a huge fan of the whole polynesian culture i think it's very cool i love the food i love the vibe um, so
1: you're gonna do like tiki drinks up on yep, the rooftop? Yep, we have rooftop? tiki drinks,
2: and I have you know I make my own spam, and we have a California burger, and you know so it's it's oh, all kind of fun. Mayonnaise? Yeah. Mayonnaise, <laughs> avocado, tomato. Oh,
1: avocado! Yeah, I do
2: a little. I do a little modern riffin and then I put ranch dressing on it instead of mayonnaise. But it oh, is are you guys biz. making ranch dressing? Yeah, I make a kimchi ranch actually. Oh,
1: really? See, I was fighting with somebody the other day about ranch dressing. They were saying, "Oh, it's not good." It was like, "No, you haven't had a homemade, like a real ranch, real dressing. ranch a dressing, real right? from scratch ra- ranch dressing is wonderful."
2: And there's a good example, like you know, as the conversation continues about how things have transcended, right? we've gotten so used to. Xantham xanthan gum thickened not so good ranch dressing in a bottle to you know to where we are now people wanting to make it from scratch i think people you know we have a better understanding of food today they want to cook they like food
1: there's a lot that that's what i think one of the things we should talk about at some point all the hobbyists the wonderful food hobbyists who you know suddenly bring a lot of knowledge and have really um elevated the scene cuz they're in there and they know things.
2: Yeah, we've come a long ways from the uh Betty Crocker and Pillsbury ads of the 50s on food television, you know.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, yes and no cuz then, you know, the shows that are really popular in food network are the ones that that support advertising for um you know, giant pancake piles and things. So <laughs> and a,
2: transformation. I thought about your earlier comment, the orange splash with cubes is, you know, they. I watch these competitions or how do you transform the ingredients, you know, and I think, God, when you pick a perfect mango off a tree, do you really want to transform it? You
1: know? Yeah. yeah. Well, again, when I was talking to Harry Singh the other day, he said that he just grew up with, uh, you know, in this outdoor kitchen and just all around it with avocado trees and mango trees and, you know, papaya trees and if you, you know, grab a green papaya when you want to make chutney. It's like, oh, you know how much you would have to pay to have that experience today <laughs> <People> <laughs> you know, do, yeah. a, this uh electricity free uh island existence anyway jack i can't thank you enough for coming oh, in pleasure he, he's the chef of the lexington and if you haven't been it's one of my favorite uh favorite places to go you re- updated the steak diane that was gorgeous thank you all right so that is our back to the 50s off the menu we'll come back next week and uh i think we'll be talking to christina when about how to how she's Made her career fun times. All right, uh, till then, I hope you have the tastiest possible week. Yeah, see you on the rooftop.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget.